<clears throat> he should be on my right because that's a place of honor. You know, everything that's right and good in this country, correct and good, is on the right. Okay. You know, we have well, we believe in symbolism. Good, you're to my right. That's so people. <laughs> People who don't know, this is uh, Pastor Mark Perkins of Front Range Bible Church, and so uh, he's going to give us a little, uh, give everybody a little talk about Camp Arete this summer, since at this point he's the president of the board for Camp Arete. And so just to review announcements, I think uh, uh, the only thing I can think of is men's prayer breakfast coming up on the 24th. That will be at 8 7.30 in the morning, and State Representative Rick Miller, uh, who's from down in Sugarland area, is going to talk. And then the next day, that Sunday at 6.30 that evening, we're going to have a special uh, pro-Israel event here with uh, retired Ambassador uh, Yorm Edinger uh, speaking, and uh, that is going to be a tremendous event. He's always great to listen to. So uh, that's what's coming up in the month of August. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer you know, so we can all make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that we either walk by the Spirit or we walk by the flesh or the sin nature. And when we walk by the uh, flesh or the sin nature, there has to be spiritual recovery. Spiritual recovery takes place by simply confessing our sins to God, which means simply to admit or acknowledge to Him uh, whatever sins we remember, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have this opportunity and privilege to gather together as a body of believers to encourage each other by our presence and to uh, focus upon your word and to be encouraged and strengthened by the truth of your word. Father, as we study your word, it is your word through God the Holy Spirit that trains us and prepares us so that we might serve you in a more effective way in every area of our life. And specifically as we study this encounter of the Apostle Paul on uh, Areopagus with the philosophers of Athens. There's a lot to learn that applies to just our own individual witnessing uh, circumstances. So, Father, we pray that we might be focused and be able to concentrate and think through these concepts tonight as we study them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we get started, uh, Mark is going to give us a little report give on Camp Arete because so many people in this congregation as well as others have been so supportive. So I'll turn it over to Mark. Thank you, uh, first of all, for your prayers and for your support in, in every way that you have. Uh, we had uh, several staff come up uh, from uh, West Houston Bible Church, and we are so grateful for you all. Uh, and our our speaker came up this year from West Houston as well. Um, Let me tell you that Camp Arete is a 52-week camp. Uh, We do spend one week of really intense discipleship with the teens who attend. Uh, But uh, when we got home, uh, we barely had time to take a nap. And uh, we began on our after-action review 
and uh, sp uh, spent a long staff meeting going over everything that uh, that we wanted to do to make camp even better next year. Um, if we just listened to the people who attended, uh, we could rest on our laurels and, and think that we did a fantastic job or the Lord did through us. But let me tell you, we're working hard for 52 weeks uh, to make the one thing that we want to do even better. And, and the one thing that, that we want to do, we're very focused in our vision, one week of intense discipleship for teens from all over the country. And it has a tremendous impact on their lives, not only to see uh, other teens just like them from churches just like theirs, uh, uh, to see that, that there's other people that are strange just like them. And that's, that's really important. Uh, but uh, also to, to energize their spiritual lives and get them back here to West Houston and Front Range and everywhere else and be an integral part of their church communities. Uh, have their parents be thrilled uh, that, they, uh, that their kids went to Camp Arete. Uh, I can tell you as a parent of two teenagers that I'm, thrilled about what camp has done for my kids. 52-week um, cycle for uh, the campers as well. Uh, we got home uh, the very next Monday. We started in on our Monday night Bible study, and we broadcast across the nation. Uh, for the kids who want to uh, tune in to that on our server, uh, we uh, have, uh, I normally teach three weeks out of the month and have a guest teacher teach the other week. And so these are kids uh, that come, and we take each other's prayer requests. Uh, we have a, a special Facebook group uh, for our kids as well, and they come and visit there and tell us what, uh, tell us what they need, uh, especially spiritually. And we've had some big things since camp uh, that have come through that we've cared for each other and prayed for each other as well. Uh, so it is a 52-week cycle. One of the, uh, let me tell you about one more thing. We, one of our kids came up with an idea that uh, we could have a T-shirt uh, that's called P Between Arete, meaning between last year's camp and next year's camp, and that uh, every Wednesday we all would wear our T-shirts to either work or, or, or church or school, and it would be constructed in such a way that it would prompt curiosity. And so the idea is that we share with one another who asked us about our shirt, and did we get to share the gospel as a result of that? Uh, did we get to tell kids about our camp as a result of that? So it's a, it's a shirt that has one of the fruits of the Spirit on the front. On the back it says, Between Arete, with a favorite Bible verse. And so we're using this as uh, just getting involved in personal evangelism. So 52-week camp. And that's, uh, that's uh, what we're doing. And in all those things, we really, really uh, think that we're doing it well and that we're doing things that no other camp does. So thanks again for your support. Thanks, Mark. You know, one of the great benefits of, of a camp ministry is a lot of things can take place in a camp ministry where there's a lot of... Uh, um, consequences to what goes on at a camp because you have counselors who learn to teach, learn to communicate the word, 
who learn to communicate the gospel to kids so that benefits them. You have different levels of leadership and involvement and service at, at a camp. And then everybody comes home, but they have, in, in an intense environment, they've learned certain things that they can bring home and can benefit a local church. And I know that over the years, I remember when I was a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid going to Camp and Isle, that almost all of my counselors that I had through those years went to the same church that I went to. And uh, some of them, in fact, many of them ended up going to Dallas Seminary, going on and pastoring or going on as missionaries. In fact, one of the men that I had um, as a counselor when I was probably 10 or 11 years old was the head, ended up being the head of greater Europe missions in in Greece out of Athens for uh, many, many years. And so you never know where these opportunities lead, what kind of consequences, because it just pulls people in. That reminds me of another little story. I'm not going get to get into the whole story, but um, some of you know it, some of you have just heard parts of it, but my first grade Sunday school teacher was Ursula Kemp at Barack Church, and Ursula and Betty Thiem wrote the Sunday school curriculum that I and many others grew up on. And the way Ursula got involved in that is that she had come here. She she and her family had to escape the Holocaust, and she left uh, Germany, and they went to Shanghai. And they landed in Shanghai with about $5 in their pocket apiece. And then after the war, uh, she had met a man 14 or 15 years her senior who was a part of the British constabulary in Shanghai, and had been imprisoned in a uh, German POW camp during the duration of the war. And then after the war, they got married, and they went to a couple of different places before they finally ended up in Houston. And she was working for a dentist who went to Barack Church and kept encouraging them to come to church. So one Sunday, they went to church, and this was probably about 1951, and and she heard the gospel, and she and her husband looked at each other. He had been raised Scottish Presbyterian, and they said, wow, we've never heard anything like this before. This kind of Bible teaching. And so they responded to that. She became a believer. And within about six months, this is, I love this story because some of you never knew this kind of Baraka church. So six months later, the lady in, who sat in front of her, now she's been a believer six months. You can measure her knowledge of scripture in a thimble. The lady who sat in front of her church turned around and said, we're starting a children's Sunday school class. Notice the verb starting. They didn't have one. We're starting a children's Sunday school class. Can you teach the first graders? So many people get the idea that they can't do this. They can't teach a five-day club. They can't teach a good news club. They can't teach in Sunday school because I've only been going to church for 25 years. I don't know enough. And here Ursula just said, well, if that's where the Lord wants to use me, fine. That's what I'm going to do. And she ends up writing one of the best Sunday school curricula that's ever been written that trained, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids and still in print and still in use as as parent handbooks for, for kids. And that's just that's because you, you, you start off saying, I just want to serve the Lord in whatever capacity I can. And I'll figure it out as I go along. And you're not saying, oh, well, you know, I'll, after I figure it all out, then I'll do it. So that's the kind of thing that the Lord uses and has a tremendous 
tremendous impact. And whether you're serving at camp or Sunday school or Good News Club and uh, or prep school, and we need people helping out in prep school and Good News Club as well, that's a great opportunity. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Acts 17. I've got several visitors here tonight, so I'm, I feel sorry for you. I'll say that up front. This is going to, this is one of the heavier, in-depth, drilled down, detailed Bible classes that we have here simply because it fits the context and every now and then it's important to get into a certain deep level of, of the word and background and has to be taught as part of the general background information and lessons that are out there uh, on the internet. It's great. You have, we have seminary students who listen. We have homeschool t- moms that are homeschooling their kids listening. We have all kinds of people listening who need to think through uh, a lot of different issues. And uh, I'm always reminded, we'll see a picture of Tommy later on. By the way, Tommy Ice has resigned from the congregation where he was serving up in Omaha and is moving back to Texas, to Fort Worth area, hopefully, and will be... Um, um, continuing going back to full-time director for the um, uh, Pre-Trib Rapture Study Center. But uh, some years ago, we have had some pictures of us uh, in Athens together, and this was, I think, about 10 or 11 years ago, or 9 or 10 years ago. And Tommy kept, we were on the bus, and Tommy kept listening to something on his iPod. And people would say, what are you doing Said, I'm listening to Robbie teach Genesis. You know, I'd be sitting on the in the bus on the aisle opposite him, and so he's going through listening to all the Genesis lessons, and he started talking to um, Ed Heinsohn, who is uh, at that time he was the assistant to Jerry Falwell when when Dr. Falwell was still alive at Liberty University, and so Tommy got in a conversation because Ed had asked him, "What do you listen to all the time?" So I'm listening to Robbie teach Genesis, so. Uh, he said, um, he said, he said, he told Heinsohn, he said, man, I just listened to this great lecture. In one hour, our, he covered the documentary hypothesis. And Heinsohn, who, who's a great guy and a great scholar in his own right, published a lot, and I have a lot of respect for him, said, why in the world would a pastor want to spend an hour in Bible class teaching the documentary hypothesis. You know, in other words, that's so dry and it just gets into a lot of academic stuff that, that that's not where people live. And Tommy said, if the pastor doesn't do it, who in the congregation is trained enough to be able to prepare and equip the young people to handle the things they're going to get, that's going to get thrown at them when they go off to college? And Ed just kind of looked at him like it was, he just got slapped with a blinding flash of the obvious. If the pastor isn't teaching in depth and isn't teaching this kind of material along with as we go through the scripture, then who else in the congregation is going to teach it to be able to train the people in the pew and the young people and the parents to be able to answer the kinds of questions that come up? So it's very important to... to uh, do this kind of a study at times. Now, we're studying Paul's second missionary journey, and he's gone, come to Athens. Athens is the seat of philosophy, the seat of r- true humanistic intellectual arrogance in the first century. Uh, it's long past their heyday, and but nevertheless, the the people of Athens have a tremendous amount of pride and uh, arrogance in their 
uh, in their, their background, their intellectual achievements, but it's all just studying the, the, these different intellectual arguments for the sake of studying these different intellectual uh, arguments, all for the sake of intellectual stimulation and not for the sake of really getting to truth because as we've studied in the uh, last several, uh, last lesson especially in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25, the problem is not that people don't know that God exists, but they, they've been suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And they suppress it so much that even uh, if I, you were to say to someone who is not a believer in God that, you know, you really do believe in God, they would say, no, no, I don't. I, you're, you're wrong. I don't believe in God. They've suppressed it so much. But the Scripture gives us this, this uh, text that tells us that everybody knows God exists because God has made it evident to them and has made it known within them. And then they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And as a result of truth suppression, as a result of the rejection of the truth of God's existence, men have to look elsewhere for truth. They have to look elsewhere for meaning in life, and they have to basically deify something else in life. And ultimately, in arrogance, we deify ourselves, and then we create other little gods. So there's this this disjunction that occurs in, in people's thinking. They reject God, capital G, capital O, capital D, as the creator ex nihilo, out of nothing, of everything in the universe, and instead they worship some other aspect of the creation, whether it's money, whether it's happiness, whether it's success, whether it's uh, athletic achievement, uh, whatever it might be, we worship things, uh, part of the creation. uh, creation rather than the creator. Romans one twenty five says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So Paul knows something when he's talking to an unbeliever. Uh, he knows that deep inside their soul, they know God exists. They understand that truth, but they're rejecting it. So what basically what Paul's strategy is in a simple way when he's communicating to an unbeliever is to tweak that that uh, suppressed truth so that like a jack-in-the-box, all of a sudden that truth is going to pop up and it's going to move from being suppressed to being out in the open, and then the person's got to respond one way or the other, usually in anger and resentment. Or not, but that's what God the Holy Spirit uses. If we look at John chapter uh, 16, Jesus talks about the fact that the that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world, that's unbelievers, uh, of, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Uh, and so it's because that's what the Holy Spirit uses to convict people of the truth. So when we think about witnessing and communicating the gospel to unbelievers, it's not just a matter of shooting them with our gospel gun. It's not just a matter of doing a drive-by evangelism where we throw a tract at them or we just say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But we enter into a conversation with the individual, treating them as a, as, as a person, and sometimes this ends up being a lifelong conversation. And I've had circumstances like that in my life, and you have as well, whereas we have gotten to know someone, it takes not just two or three times of going over the gospel with somebody, but maybe dozens of times over a period of decades before they respond to the gospel. And throughout that time, God the Holy Spirit is working. Remember, 
the Apostle Paul heard the gospel probably dozens and dozens of times before the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, so that when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, when he was headed to Damascus to arrest and to uh, execute Christians, when Jesus appeared to him, he had a clear understanding of who Jesus was. He knew exactly what Jesus had done for him. He had a clear grasp of the gospel so that as soon as he saw the risen uh, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in front of him, he immediately responds in faith because it was that piece of evidence that was the last thing that gave him that uh, knowledge of the gospel. So he knows exactly the kind of person he's talking to because at, at, at uh, Areopagus because he himself was that kind of intellectual uh, target audience who kept rejecting the gospel, rejecting the gospel, rejecting the gospel, and he's not going to let his audience uh, hide behind some sort of subterfuge, some sort of a, a camouflage technique used to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So he's going to be very, very clear. So we see in the in the episode that Paul becomes so upset as he's walking around Athen, uh, Athens that he sees all of these idols. And uh, I believe it was Pausanias said that there were uh, more gods than people in Athens. And, uh, and everywhere he looked, there was a temple to this god, temple to that god, temple to this other god. And he sort of locates this one idol that's to the unknown god. But don't make the mistake of thinking the unknown God equals the God of the Bible because this unknown God, that their perception of it was this is a God like all their other gods, just another God in their pantheon. And if you make the mistake of thinking that the God of the Bible fits that, then you're just sticking another idol up on your shelf of different gods rather than realizing there's this radical, radical distinction. So Paul becomes upset over seeing all of these idols, and he has a discussion with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who don't really comprehend his message, and they take him before this council of the Areopagites uh, who sort of oversaw what was being taught and the different philosophies in Athens for evaluation. And so his sermon, verses 22 to 31, uh, give an explanation of what he is teaching. He gives a, the introduction begins by using the uh, idol of the, to the unknown God as sort of a starting point for his talk. It's not, he doesn't view this as a point of common ground. He doesn't, he's not saying that this unknown God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's just saying this shows and is indicative of their uh, God consciousness. And now he's going to tell them about the real God. And so he gives a description of God, focusing on God as the creator, and that's so important, as we'll see in verses 24 to 29. And then he challenges them in verses uh, 30 and 31. We've looked at this in terms of the framework for Bible study methods, the kind of questions that you need to ask, anything you read in the Bible, uh, who, what, when, where, uh, why and how, and we've covered pretty much that in our in the summary. And so we'll just jump into this to get to our point where we stopped last time. Paul says, men of Athens, I perceive that you are in all things very religious. That word religious is a Greek word, daimon. Notice that last part of it, daimon, 
uh, was a word that is translated demon. He's using this word because in Greek it also had the connotation of being religious or superstitious, but he's sort of tweaking them a little bit because he's using a word that also has this implication of the demonic. And so Paul... Uh, Paul is making this connection there. You and I sort of have an inside track. It's like an inside joke. And we say, you know, he's, he's indicating that the source of their religious beliefs and their superstition uh, has its origin in Satan and the demonic. And he gives that touchstone, uh, verse 23, As I went by, I saw there's an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And then he says, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing... Okay, so he's going to make this segue. This is the one I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, we looked at Romans 1 last time. I'm going to skip past that and get into what we covered briefly last time, or at least the introduction, on something called the great chain of being. The great chain of being. Now, if you lived in in any sort of educated part of the world, uh, from the ancient times all the way up through the early part of the 19th century, this wasn't a uh, new or unusual concept. It's called the chain of being or the continuity of being. Uh, Aristotle uh, in the Latin is scala natura, which is the scale of nature. Uh, It is uh, basically this idea that there's a hierarchy of forms or a hierarchy of being in the universe. God is not separate from it. He's all, all of this is inside the same bubble, you might say. The bubble is, is existence in and of itself, just beingness. And so God's at the top of the chain. Uh, non-being is at the bottom. Ro- ro- everything in between includes rocks, uh, plants, mankind, uh, all the way through angels, but it all participates in the same form of being so that God is not viewed as something different, categorically different as the creator uh, God of, of the universe. Now, we went through last time, and I took us up to the point where we get got into looking at, uh, we're going to get to the point of looking at uh, Greek mythology. Here's uh, another slide I want to put up uh, showing this chain of being. And everything emanates from God so that it, it leads to pantheism, uh, or forms of pantheism where uh, everything participates in God. So this leads to the idea that everything is somehow sacred. It feeds a lot of different philosophies, and it's it undergirds uh, environmentalistic philosophies today. It undergirds uh, uh, evolutionary theory. It undergirds uh, many of these other uh, uh, ideas that are very prevalent in our in our world today. The difference is that for Christians, uh, God is not part of this same chain of being. God is different, but unbelief wants to redefine God in terms of its of its own, uh, in terms of its own makeup. So let's look at a few things. I want to look at how the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Greeks all looked at this because what this is going to do is help us get a handle on why the, why Paul takes this approach with the Stoics and the Epicureans. He's not emphasizing the, uh, that God is the creator because that just seems like a good idea. He has a strategy. And that's something that we ought to think about when we're witnessing to people 
every person's different, and we need to think through several different strategies for how we're going to communicate the gospel to people and truly listen to people when we're explaining the gospel so we understand how and if they are hearing us correctly. And if we're really communicating to them or if in unbelief they're just suppressing whatever truth they hear and they automatically reshape it, reformat it, and redefine it and throw something back at us that has nothing to do with what we were saying. Sometimes that's what happens and it's it's very difficult. So let's understand a little bit about these ideas of origins. All of these things that we're going to look at is how these different cultures and religious systems viewed how life ultimately began. And the one thing they're going to have in common is that matter is eternal, just like the Big Bang Theory. If you push everything back, everything back according to modern views of of origins and evolution, it all goes back to some super compressed, dense mass of matter that exploded. That's the Big Bang Theory. Well, where did that matter come from? Well, it's eternal. We we don't ask those questions. You know, it just was always there. Well, if you look at all of these uh, primitive uh, mythologies and and stories about origins, they all start with something that's already there. There's no creation out of out of nothing. So the first uh, quote I'm going to uh, put up here is a, is a quote from. Um, the book of knowing the evolutions of Ra and of overthrowing Apepi. This is a, um, this is an Egyptian document. And, uh, E. Wallace Budge, who is one of the foremost Egyptologists of the 20th century here, makes this observation that, that the word that's rendered by the English word evolutions, see, look at the title, the book of knowing the evolutions. What's that word? He says that word in the Egyptian is Kipuru. That's the word that I ha- that's related to this god here, Kapera. Uh, Kipuru, the root for ev- the, the, um, this word evolutions is the Egyptian uh, Kipuru, and it's derived from a root word Keper, which means to make or to fashion, to produce, to form, or to become. It's a creation-type term, to make something, to form it, to shape it, uh, and it has a derived sense of to roll, uh, to roll something. In the text, as you read this, the words are placed in the mouth of the god uh, Nebertetcher, or Nebertcher, the lord of the universe, and he's, all, and he's a form of the sun god, Ra, within all the different gods and goddesses that the Egyptians had. And he says, I am he who came into being in the form of the god Kapera. Let's retranslate it. I came in the form of the god Evolution. I came in the form of the god Change. I came in this form... Um, and I was the creator of that which came into being. So you have this this God that it comes out of him. Now, how do we know that it comes out of him? Well, regarding his own origin, we have this statement. He says, I came into being from primordial matter. Well, wait a minute. How does that differ from the Big Bang? We had primordial matter was already in existence. There's no, the God comes out of this primordial matter. He's already part of the universe. He's not 
separate and distinct from the universe. So he says, I'm the God, uh, uh, came into being from uh, primordial matter, and I appeared under the form of multitudes of things from the beginning. Nothing existed at that time. Wait a minute, something did. Primordial matter did. Uh, nothing existed at that time, and it was I who made whatever was made. I made all the forms under which I appeared by means of the God soul, which I raised up out of new. New is the goddess, uh, the sky goddess, and also related to the, uh, the primeval inactive abyss of water. Now, the diagram that's here, we have a picture of Shu. This is Shu standing up here. Shu is the god of the air, upholding Newt, the goddess of the sky, while the earth god, uh, Geb, is underneath. Now, there are all these gods and goddesses are basically part of matter, part of creation. They're all part of the same beingness, as we will see. Now, we're going to see the same kind of structure when we look at Babylonian uh, mythological uh, cosmology, how they explain things, and their primary book was called Enuma Elish, Enuma Elish. And this is the story of how the god uh, Marduk on the right, which is the main, uh, the main god of the Babylonian uh, pantheon, uh, is going to disembowel the god Tiamat on the left and is going to create everything out of her body. Now, what we're going to do here is I'm just going to point out a couple of things. This is the text from this uh, Babylonian creation myth, and I just want you to see a couple of things. This is important for a couple of reasons for you to, for you to be aware of. starts off when above in Babylonian, that's Enuma Elish, most documents in the ancient world, even today in the Roman Catholic Church, the title of a document comes from the first two or three words. For example, the first book of the Bible is called uh, Bereshit in, in Hebrew. The first word in Genesis 1-1 is Bereshit and then bara Elohim in the beginning. So that's the first word is the title for the document. So when above, Enuma Elish, the heaven had not yet been named, and below the earth had not yet been called by a name. And then we have three gods and goddesses mentioned. When Apsu, primeval, their begetter, Mumu, and Tiamat, she who gave birth to them all, mingled their waters together. Now here's a question for you. You have th these three go gods and goddesses, Apsu, Mumu, and Tiamat. They mingle their waters together. What do they look like? Can you differentiate them? Now, they're just personifications of these different elements, but that it all sort of uh, merges together. What we see here, according to the Babylonian uh, view, is that the he heaven's not named yet, the earth isn't named, there's a presence of water, and then these three uh, deities, Apsu, Mumu, and Tiamat, and there's just a formless chaos of water that's present there. And then the last word in the line down here says, at that time the gods were created within them. So you have this formless intermingling of these three entities, and inside of them you have all these little gods and goddesses who are you know, just sort of like that uh, bad jalapeno pizza you had last night, started fighting with each other uh, inside the bowels of these gods, and then out of that is what's going to come uh, creation. Uh, the next uh, couple of lines further down, it says, 
that uh, they were moving and running about in the divine abode. So they're all just kind of scurrying around inside of these uh, these three three gods. Then we'll just skip down a little bit. The Lord uh, skip down to this line. Marduk split Tiamat open like a muscle into two parts. Out of that is going to come everything else in creation. So what the point I'm making is they don't have an ex nihilo creation either. They have these gods are really matter. They're part of, of the creation. Just like you have in the diagram I showed from the Egyptian view, Marduk splits open Tiamat like a muscle into two parts. Half of her he set in place and formed the sky uh, as a roof, and he fixed the crossbar and posted guards and commanded her, them not to let her waters escape. So you have this same view of the of the universe. It's all kind of kind of one. A little further down, we read, with his blood they created a punishment they inflicted upon Kingu, one of the other gods that came out of the interior, and they, he's killed, and then with his blood they create mankind. So mankind and everything in creation is created out of something from these uh, from these gods and goddesses. They're, they're really personifications of matter. What's eternal? Matter is 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 eternal. Now... One of the reasons, another reason to point this out to you is that what today it's real popular in Old Testament faculties at seminaries to pattern Genesis 1 on these Babylonian and Egyptian mythologies. But my question is what came first, the actual events of Genesis 1 or the mythologies of the Egyptians and the Babylonians? Well, the actual events of Genesis 1 occurred. They're written down by Adam. They're passed down through the generations. Uh, pa- uh, they're preserved by Noah beyond the flood. And then in the civilizations that develop after the flood, you have sort of a, a, a perversion and distortion of those historical events. And that's when you get the e- Egyptian mythology and the Babylonian mythology. But they're just uh, distortions of an original true event. But what happens today in many of these Old Testament faculties is that they have views that, well, the Babylonian mythologies were written and the Egyptian cosmologies were written. And where did, he, where did Moses live? Where did he grow up? Oh, he grew up in Egypt. See, he got his ideas for Genesis 1 from the Egyptians. He got it from the Babylonians. And so what we really need to do is we need to understand Genesis 1 in light of Babylonian and uh, Egyptian cosmology. And so they'll retranslate, because it's conceivable, but it's not the most likely way to translate it. They'll translate the, that beginning of Genesis 1, in the beginning. And that begins with the Hebrew preposition ba, which normally means in, but it can mean when. And so they translate this, and this you'll find this in some of the Jewish translations and in some others, when God cre- began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. So you see what they've done is they have polluted the ex nihilo creation of Genesis 1-1 by saying that, see, what Genesis 1-1 is saying the same thing as all these other pagan mythologies, and what they're saying is, when God began to create, matter was already there. 
See, matter is eternal too. And this begins a process and a rationale for compromising with evolutionary beliefs so that today you have more and more Bible colleges and seminaries and schools deserting uh, any kind of a literal belief in Genesis 1, uh, 1 through 11. And it affects all kinds of different people. Now, one quote that I wanted to read to you because it's rather uh, interesting and explains this is a quote from Thorkild uh, Jacobson. Thorkild Jacobson, who wrote a chapter, uh, chapter called the Numa Elish, the Babylonian Genesis. Now, uh, he's, he died in the early 90s, but when he was at his most prominent, he was the head of the Department of Assyriology at the University of Chicago, and then he left the University of Chicago to become a full professor of Assyriology, and, um, which deals with Assyrian and Babylonian archaeology at, at, uh, at Harvard University. And regarding this, he says, specifically, Enuma Elish assumes that all things have evolved out of water. So he it makes it very clear that the old the, the, these mythologies were just sort of a superstitious religious way of talking about what we today have cloaked in scientific th- terminology and called uh, evolution. He goes on to say this description presents the earliest stage of the universe as one of watery chaos. The chaos consisted of three intermingled elements, Apsu, representing sweet water or fresh water, Tiamat, who represents the sea, and Mumu, who cannot as yet be identified with certainty, but may represent cloud banks and mist. So these all sort of mingle together. Now let's get into a little bit about Greek, uh, how the Greeks thought of, the, of creation. According to Orpheus, this goes back before the time of Homer and Hesiod, uh, back into about the 7th or 8th century B.C., their view was that time existed first, that there's no actual beginning. This is one reason when I teach Genesis 1.1, I emphasize that Genesis 1.1 isn't simply a topical sentence. There's a lot of people who want to argue that's what we have in Genesis 1.1. But, but Genesis 1.1 is not parallel to Genesis 2-4. You can take a look at that sometime later, but a lot of people say Genesis 2-4 is a closing summary, Genesis 1-1 is the opening opening summary, but they're not really, uh, they don't really parallel one another that much. Genesis 1-1 is a clear statement of ex nihilo creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 then breaks because of the way the construction is, there's a what's called a disjunctive valve, or we would call a contrastive uh, conjugation there or, uh, uh, at the beginning of uh, Genesis 1-2, and it's translated but. And so you have this uh, um, conjunction there. I said conjugation, I meant conjunction. You have this contrastive conjunction there uh, that it should be translated, but the earth became formless and void, indicating some sort of transformation from the original created state. And we believe that between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, you can understand that's when the satanic rebellion occurred. If you don't put it there, then you don't have anything in the Bible that talks about the beginnings of evil, the beginnings of Satan, or, or the beginnings of even the universe. 
It just sort of starts. It would be like taking a, a wedding album and you open the wedding album and it says, you know, the marriage of so-and-so and you start off and, and you see them and they're already courting. You don't ever find out how they met. Uh, where they came from. You just see them getting ready to walk down the aisle, which is how most wedding albums are. But you don't understand anything about the background. So Genesis 1-1 is the only place that talks about the very beginning of, of creation. So the Greeks, though, have time always existing, but it's cyclical. It just goes, history repeats itself over and over and over again ad infinitum for eternity. Uh, there's no actual beginning. Time is always there. And then time generates chaos. See, some people want to say, see, chaos, that's like without form and void. See, that's where the Bible got it. But no, no, it's, it's just a perversion of what the Bible originally taught because they're suppressing the truth and re-explaining things. So their view was that time generated chaos uh, which was an enormous space containing night, mist, and the upper regions of the air, or what they called ether. A time commanded in the mist spun around with such speed that the mass congealed and solidified into the shape of a huge egg. Until I said huge egg, you thought I was talking about the Big Bang, didn't you? You know, something like that. It's a, it's a huge egg which broke into two halves, which became the heaven and the earth. Isn't this time plus random chance and just generates matter, which is everything else? So that's the, that's the starting point with Orpheus. Then um, Homer came along, and Homer saw that the earth was uh, flooded by Oceanus, who's a god who personified the ocean, and a vast sea surrounded the earth. So once again, everything seems to come out of water. Now, my personal belief is, and I don't, I'm not going to ever be able to prove this because I'm a pastor. I'm not out running around trying to solve, create these things, is that after the flood was such a traumatic crisis event in, in man's mind, that after the flood, that's when all these myths are developed. After the flood, they're trying to explain things and everything comes out of water. Ultimately, because in a sense, everything did come out of water. Noah's Ark floated off the onto Ararat, and everything came out of there. So, but it's a distorted explanation, rejecting the whole idea of a creator God. Thomas Cahill, in his book *Sailing the Wine Dark Sea: Why the Greeks Matter*, summarizes one Greek origin story this way: The Titans had been formed by Father Heaven, so you have the heavens are eternal, and the earth is eternal in, in this view. Uh, Mother Earth, Gaia, uh, which had existed before any of the gods. So before there's any god, you have matter. You have the heavens and the earth, and they're eternal. And he says, uh, uh, Mother, uh, Father Heaven, Mother Earth, had existed before any of the gods, having emerged from the primordial chaos whose children, darkness and death, had given birth to light and love, for night is the mother of day, which made possible the appearance of heaven and earth. You notice a similarity in all these different views, and they're radically different from the view of the Bible. So we can draw certain conclusions from this. First of all, all pagan myths begin with the existence of some sort of matter or the gods themselves who are often personifications of matter. Just like in modern forms of evolutionary theory, it starts with the eternal existence of matter. So everything comes out of that. 
That's why we talk about this chain of being. Everything basically participates in what that, that this stuff is, even the gods. They're not completely separate from it. They're just part of the same system. Second thing we see is the mechanics of creation involve some sort of procreation. In, in some cases, the two gods have sex, and the result of that is she's, one of the gods gets pregnant and gives birth to uh, the earth or different things like that, some, always some sort of procreative activity uh, which leads to something else coming along. So there's no such thing as a creation out of nothing, no creation ex nihilo. Third point is that all of these ancient cosmologies tell stories where already existing material is transformed into something else. One part of the universe causes or self-generates another part of the universe. This shows a basic continuity between all existing things. That's the fourth point. There's a continuity between all living things, including God. Whether you're talking about God or a rock, the only difference is the amount of being that each one of these things has, but they're all part of the same system. Now, that has tremendous implications for all kinds of things, but if you want to think about something, just think about environmentalist thinking and, and the pantheism that's, that's, that's part of that. This ends up with man being one with the universe. We have to learn to be one with the universe, and we can't do it if we're fracking. Just want to see if anybody was still awake listening out there. We have to be one with the universe. We all have to sit, to, sit together. So Satan makes the same kind of claim when, in, under point six. Satan makes the same kind of claim when he suggests that Eve can be like God. She said, he, he, he says, hey, God, God didn't want you to eat from that tree because you'll be like him. But see, isn't that fruit good to eat? You can be just like God. And so she can become one with God and elevate herself up the chain of being. So she can give herself a little promotion. Now, the bottom line is we have to be clear whenever we're talking to other people that we maintain this clear distinction between the creator and the creation because the God that we're talking about isn't a God like any other God. He isn't just, an, if you're talking to a Hindu who has 3,000 gods, this isn't, Jesus isn't just another god you can put on the shelf. He is totally distinct, and that's what's happening with the, um, uh, with the Greeks. So we're going to chart it out like this. The God of the Bible is a personal, infinite God who exists as a triune person. He is eternal. All of his attributes he possesses in an unmeasured or infinite manner, but yet he is personal. He can carry on a personal relationship with an individual. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so everything is created by him, including things like music. And when we had music in eternity past, it was three-part harmony. I'm just trying to see if anybody's listening tonight, okay? But God is completely and totally distinct from the finite universe where we find angels, man, animals, vegetation, matter, energy, rocks, dirt, whatever. Now, on the other side, I'm going to diagram the pagan view. You have an infinite, impersonal universe. 
on the Christian side, ultimate reality is personal and infinite. So as persons, we have value. In an impersonal universe, there's no basis for personhood or individuality. So you have an infinite impersonal universe that just exists out there, and then we have what I'm going to put up here. This is the circle of being. And inside that you have God, angels, man, animals, nature, rocks, whatever. This leads to something called monism because ultimately everything is one in being. And this is indicated by the Buddhist yin-yang symbol. Everything is one. Even though you have good and evil, those are just ways of talking about things. In modern, in postmodernism, these are just different constructs, but they're all part of the same being. Now, you all saw this demonstrated, most of you probably did, saw this demonstrated in an extremely popular uh, movie that came out back in the late 70s. And that movie was uh, The Empire Strikes Back. And there's a scene when Luke Skywalker has gone off to, I forget whatever the planet was, where he's with Yoda and he's going through his little Jedi Knight training. And he goes back into the darkness and he has this fight with Darth Vader. And he cuts off Darth Vader's head. And, of course, he's got that big black helmet on. And so he goes over and he pops the visor up. And what does he see? You remember? He sees himself. He sees himself. See, this is typical monism. This is like what, you, what was sung in a Beatles song back in the uh, late 60s. I am you, you are me, he is she, we are one. It's pure Hindu, Buddhist, pantheistic monism. And that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and beyond. It's pure paganism. That everything is one. There's no separate entity called God who is over against creation. Okay, so which side of that dividing line are we as Christians? We're on that left side. We have a distinct, unique God. And so we can't let people try to force him in to that circle of being on the right. Now, as I've gone through this, we're sliding from mythological explanations to philosophical explanations of origins that developed in Greek culture. Henry Fairfield Osborne, who's a former director of the American Museum of Natural History, wrote a book called From the Greeks to Darwin. He's an evolutionist. And he said, when I began the search for anticipations of the evolutionary theory, I was led back to the Greek natural philosophers, and I was astonished to find how many of the pronounced and basic features of the Darwinian theory were anticipated even as far back as the 7th century B.C. There's nothing new under the sun. All Darwin did was take some ideas that had always been there and reshaped them a little bit, reformatted them, came up with some new definitions, but it's the same ideas that flow out of the ancient pantheistic monism. L.T. Moore, in his book, uh, Dogma, uh, dealing also with um, a pro-evolutionary book, says, if evolutionists must find a cornerstone in Greek philosophy for their doctrine, they should give this honor to 
uh, Democritus, his doctrine of mechanical and atomistic monism. Now, that's a big mouthful, but if you don't know that, we'll get into it a little bit in a minute. I'll give you some definitions. Uh, his doctrine of mechanical and atomistic monism in which all phenomena are reduced to material particles moving according to natural law is in the real sense of the word modern science. Did you get that? He's saying this idea of, of monism, where everything's just reduced to DNA, everything's just reduced to molecules, and everything's just reduced to physical laws. There's no such thing as soul or spirit. Modern psychology's rejected the whole idea that, so, that there's a soul or spirit. Everything is material. Everything is just the result of your DNA and the way it's coded into your, your system. So you're not responsible for anything. See, this, this has a, and, and I was talking with uh, my friend Bob Gare, who's a lawyer down the valley. We've had several conversations over the last few years where he is just appalled at how in, in the courtroom more and more people just, no matter what happens, they're not responsible. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I'm just programmed that way. That's the way I was born. That's, that's my DNA. That's, that's how I'm coded. That's, that's a genetics. I don't, it's not my fault. And people just deny complete responsibility. And our worldview today that comes out of uh, this, this whole view of the chain of being, is it goes back to this atomistic idea where everything is just basically chemical. That's how it's set up. Now, this goes back to a group of philosophers, a little history lesson now, called the pre-Socratics. Now, Socrates taught uh, Plato. Plato taught Aristotle. Okay. So we have the pre-Socratics. They're before Socrates. This is really early. They're just trying to play guessing games, trying to figure out the ultimate nature of reality. So they have the view that monism is the view that all reality is of one kind. Uh, it's neutral monism or material monism or pantheistic, pantheistic monism, but it's all one kind. Remember, monism is it's all one. We all want to be one with nature. We all want to be one with uh, uh, with everybody else. We all want to have this kind of uh, this kind of unity. And they often talk about, oh, the Indians were such wonder. They they were just in tune in tune with nature. I'm reading a great book right now called uh, uh, The Empire of the Summer Moon, uh, Quanta Parker and the Rise and Fall uh, of the Comanche Nation. Fabulous book, but it really does a great job of showing just the, the demonic views of, of the Indians and how, um, uh, especially how cruel and vicious and wicked and violent they were to each other before any white men were around. It's not our fault they were that way. They were that way long before any white men showed up. And we don't know a lot about it because there weren't too many white men around to write down histories and they weren't concerned about history. So... It all goes back to that one with nature thing. One with nature is just horror, and it always has produced horror and always will because there's no real ethical foundation. Pantheism is the belief that God and the creation are identical. So you don't want to pollute creation, not because it may kill your children, although that there's a valid point there because you've got industrial waste being dumped into good rivers, but you don't want to mess it up because you're messing up God. And so, you know, human beings are just little viruses running around infecting God. So under strict environmentalist theory, uh, the worst 
uh, organism on the planet are the human beings. In monotheist or in monistic pantheism, the ultimate reality or the basic stuff of the universe is identified as God. You know, air, fire, water, these are the gods, and so you have just the personification of those particular gods. Well, in the last couple of minutes, I want to just hit this real fast. We have Thales. Thales came along and said primordial matter was water, and water is the foundation for everything in existence. He's the, that's where, if you're studying the history of philosophy, it starts with Thales. Then you come along, we have Anaximander. Anaximander lived a little bit uh, later than Thales, but he said, no, 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 it's not water. Uh, it's uh, primordial, primordial matter is hot and cold, wet and dry. And some have said that his book on nature is the first very primitive uh, writing on, or presentation of a written theory of, of evolution. So primordial matter is hot and cold, wet and dry, these opposites, and that explains everything in existence. And you come along with Anaximenes, Anaximenes again is a little bit later, and he said, hmm, you guys are wrong. Ultimate reality is just air. Air is the basic stuff of life. It's equated to the soul. And um, this this becomes, when it's thinned out, it becomes fire. When it's condensed, it becomes wind and then a cloud. When it's more condensed, it becomes water. Then if it's condensed more, it's the earth and stone. So everything comes from... Uh, everything comes from this primordial air, and that explains everything in existence. Then you have Heraclitus, who lived about the same time, who says the universe is con- continually changing, but it's a change in oneness, so that even though there's change, it's all within the same oneness or unity. Uh, Parmenides came along, and he said, no, they're just one, so... You have these conflicts, but ultimately they're all talking about the same thing, which is you start off with this one primordial matter that explains everything else in existence. And this goes on through a whole chain of different philosophers until we get down to uh, Plato. I said Aristotle and Plato earlier. I meant, yeah, I think I got it right. So, uh, Socrates, Plato, and then Aristotle. Um, Aristotle, uh, the, the basic difference between the two is Plato's on the right, your left. Uh, he's the one pointing up that ultimate reality is in these ideals and that everything that we see is just a shadow, just a shadow. Whereas, uh, so everything is ultimately more, it's rationalism. Tom Wright's not here. Tom Wright told me a great joke. The modern rationalist is Descartes. Descartes the one who said, remember, I think, therefore I am. So one night Descartes goes into a bar. Descartes sitting at the bar, sipping on his beer, and the bartender comes over and says, what are you thinking about? He says, I'm not thinking about anything. Poof, he disappeared. So Plato originates this idea of rationalism. And he has this idea that there are these ideas, that's ultimate reality. And he called them forms or absolutes. They might be called the absolute good or the summum bonum, but that's God. And it's a, it's up in, you know, the, a, a different realm. But the realm we see is the realm of matter, 
which is individual things. Okay, so uh, the ideas are being itself, and everything comes out of that. Once again, you don't have God as being something totally distinct. So in uh, with um, Plato, out of its perfect fullness, it being necessarily creates all possible things with all possible transitions. So being is the source of everything from within itself. It's not set apart con- from completely from uh, the things that are there. Okay, then we have Aristotle. Aristotle is the first to really articulate this whole chain of being as God, angels, mankind, bird, animals, and vegetation. He said the universe resembles a large and well-regulated family in which all the officers and servants and even the domestic animals are subservient to each other in proper subordination. Each enjoys the privileges and prerequisites peculiar to its place and at the same time contributes uh, by that just subordination to the magnificence and happiness of the whole. In other words, everything's just this one chain. Now, that leads in our history to Epicurus. Who are we dealing with? The Epicureans and the Stoics. And when we get to the Epicureans, he's originally a follower of Aristotle. And when uh, Aristotle died, when Epicurus was young, but Epicurus denies any purpose in nature at all. Everything is just a product of chance. So he emphasizes that you have all of these basic components called atoms, and they just have this randomness to them. And so there's an infinite number of worlds. There's no gods, completely rejected gods. So the Epicureans Paul's talking to are basically what we'd call today atheists. There's no God in their system. The universe is eternal, and everything on the earth evolved directly from the matter on earth itself. See, Paul's witnessing to people that aren't any different from a lot of the people that you and I are witnessing. They're just a bunch of materialist uh, evolutionists. <clears throat> then we have uh, one of the famous uh, Roman ep- uh, uh, Epicureans was Lucretius, who wrote a six-volume work on this, and he basically says, Nature is free and uncontrolled by proud masters and runs the universe by herself without the aid of gods. Can you say the word random chance? Basically, that's what evolution is, is time plus chance equals order and sophistication. Well, this is, that's what they believe, is everything is pure chance. Lucretius also said, I've taught you that things cannot be created out of nothing, nor once born be summoned back to nothing. Okay, so there, there's no ex nihilo creation. Then we get to the, uh, the Stoics. The Stoics were also pantheistic monists, everything's one, and they emphasize a simple life in submission to circumstances. Now, Epicureans are not pursuing pleasure for pleasure's sake. The best way to understand the Epicureans is they're pursuing happiness, but happiness isn't ephemeral. It isn't just the momentary uh, stimulation of our nerves so that we feel good. It is a long-term happiness. And it only comes, therefore, they bring in a certain ethical system because only through responsibility and, and hard work and things like that can you truly be, uh, can you truly be happy. In, um, in Stoicism, they emphasize that, that things are going to happen to you and you just have to learn, uh, to accept 
and live consistent with uh, your circumstances, and then you can have uh, have happiness. But what they all have in common is this this same concept of being. Now, when Paul comes along and he starts to talk about resurrection and he talks about God as the creator, they can't fathom that because they've been immersed in their uh, truth suppression so much that they redefine it. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody listens to him because there are certainly those who do respond to Paul and do respond to the gospel, and they are going to form a nucleus in Athens. But most of them, uh, most of them do not. And so just as we close here, I want you to want to point out what, uh, what Paul says in his address. He said, God is the one who made the world and everything in it. See how much that dis- disagrees with everything they think? God is the one who made the world and everything in it. He doesn't back off. He doesn't say this is one of many gods and, and uh, he, everything came out of him. He said, no, God made the world, everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, what he's going to do when he talks about resurrection, because God is the creator and <clears throat> because Jesus is God, resurrection and victory over death is possible. And in Greek thought, that was not possible. Resurrection was a foolish, impossible notion. And so he emphasizes at the start who God is, and that needs to be a vital uh, aspect in our, whenever we witness to people, is making sure they understand who God is, that we're not talking about some sort of generic concept of G-O-D, we're thinking about a specific God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth and is omnipotent, omnipresent, <coughs> and omniscient. So we'll come back next time and get into the rest of Paul's uh, message on Areopagus, understanding that as, a, as a, a one of several models we see in Scripture for how to present the gospel to unbelievers. Father, we thank you for this time that we can get together this evening we're reminded that in the darkness of those who suppress the truth, that their minds have been darkened and that they worship the cre- uh, creature rather than the creator, but that we have light and we have truth, and that truth has been revealed to us not just by words, but has been revealed by the eternal Lagos, the eternal second person of the Trinity who became flesh and dwelt among us, so that he could display for us in a finite form who you are, that we might have a better understanding of you as the creator God who rules over the affairs of men. And, Father, we're thankful for our salvation and that it is dependent not upon what we do but upon who you are and what Christ did for us on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.